This is the second Sunday of Christmas. We're focused on the incarnation, God becoming a human being. Certain affirmations that I have made about the Christmas season that I'll speak of in a few minutes. But I I recall that uh, in the middle of the 19th century, one of the pre-Raphaelites, whose name I do not now remember, painted a painting of Jesus in his father's workshop with his mother and his siblings and his father doing carpentry work. And when this painting was painted uh, and put on display, it caused a firestorm of controversy in the critical press. And the London papers were full of art critics panning this painting and saying, how dare he paint a painting showing the savior of the world in this way. As a young adolescent boy learning carpentry in his father's workshop. You know, some people's views of the humanity of Jesus uh, are sometimes somewhat sentimental. Or they believe that Jesus was somehow really like a pointillist painting and was not really there and you could put your hands through him. He wasn't a real human being. And this is a festival, the Christmas feasts, about the incarnation, God becoming a human being. Incarnation means in the meat in Latin. So it means he was a real human being. He had all of the human traits and the developmental issues that you and I have gone through. The early Christian church had arguments for a a, a period of time about things like, did Jesus go through a moral development? In other words, let's say in in, in modern uh, parlance it would be, Did Jesus have to be socialized? Get up and brush your teeth. Right? And the answer to that is, yes, he did. Just like you and me. So he had all of the uh, limitations and all of the uh, future possibility that each one of us has. And yet he was also divine. They said that he was God and that the divinity and the humanity weren't separate cells in him, but were one thing. Now, I mention this because the collect for today is our predicate. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity your son, Jesus Christ. So the restorative processes of God are what we read about in the readings today from Jeremiah, from Ephesians, and from Matthew's story of the Holy Family going to Egypt and coming back. So I thought I'd preach a bit on each of those readings and then to say something about the four Christmas affirmations and how they connect to the restoration of our human dignity. Another way you might say that, of course, is becoming what we already are. 
And how do we do that connecting to the promises of God? Jeremiah uh, is usually the most, the painter of the bluest picture of all the prophets. And today he has a rather joyful passage about the return from exile and the potentialities that are in this return from a situation of separation, alienation, and lostness. Early Christian people will understand this biblical text to have something to do with the return from exile, which was a big theme in early Christianity, in New Testament Christianity, that Jesus somehow embodied the completion of the return and restoration of the people and the promises of God. But also as people began in their own prayer, both corporately and personally, to reflect on passages like this, they came to understand that God's restorative work, God's saving power, is at work in each one of us individually and personally. So you and I can come from a condition of lostness and separation, which we go through from time to time in big and small ways, to restoration, to healing, and to wholeness, and to salvation. And the word in the Hebrew Bible used for save and the word in the Greek New Testament that is used for save also means heal. So we're speaking about God's healing processes at work in the hearts of faithful people. And Jeremiah is speaking very hopefully from a 3995 biblical scholarship point of view. Jeremiah, or this section of Jeremiah, was written 100 years after the return from Babylon. But it demonstrates that in the thought world of the people at the time of Jesus and up to that, we're in some way anticipating some form of God's work in the world to bring the processes of restoration and reconciliation and wholeness to bear on all human activity. And you know, we believe as Christian people that the person of Jesus Christ represents the unique focus of the divine presence. But we also believe that in Jesus we have seen now the fullness of the continuous activity of God's restoring power in human history, in the history of salvation. And all of the early Christians, certainly the Jewish Christians, looked at their sacred literature and said, when we've seen him and when we've heard him and when we've thought about what we've seen and heard, we see now the divine presence focused in a human being. So the reading from Jeremiah is a setup for this restoration, for this return from exile. And so each one of us may appropriate that text in our own way based on our own personal history and understand that God's restorative work is always available to us and we must cooperate with that divine initiative begun in us. In the reading from Ephesians, Paul is speaking about uh, the idea of God's reconciling work producing some unifying, some unity both in, in our internal spiritual and emotional states, but also with regard to the relationship, for example, between Jews and Gentiles. And he's writing to the Ephesians today about that future possibility and that in this particular case, the community that he is writing to has begun to make a movement in this direction. 
You know, there are some biblical scholars with some justification who say that Ephesians is one of those 13 letters that is not undoubtedly Pauline. You all may say, who cares? But one of the interesting things about talking about all this stuff is to see somehow the continuity of the teaching of Paul as it manifests itself in communities that are dealing with the pastoral realities on the ground. And the church in Ephesus had to struggle with some of the questions of how do we understand God's unifying work within the midst of the controversies we find within our human, our, our own community in Ephesus with regard to the Gentiles and the Jews and who are the heirs of the promise and how do we understand the nature of being in a privileged or non-privileged state? What do we do about all of these kinds of things and what does it mean to be one in Christ? And on Christmas, when we speak about God becoming a human being, that great unifying work is an affirmation of some aspects of what God is saying in Jesus about who we are and what we can become. Some biblical scholars believe in uh, Matthew's gospel. We see Matthew at work to... Uh, to, to do something about the nature of Jesus that will, for those from his faith tradition, Jewish Christians say he stands in the absolute continu continuity with Moses, one of the great figures of our history in terms of the movement towards reconciliation and the movement away from exile and alienation. And so for Matthew... Jesus represents in his person the new law, the new Torah. Some have said that Matthew's gospel has five parts to it that correspond to the first five books of the Old Testament. So in Jesus, the law, the law of love is the operative principle in all human interaction, not the observance of all of the abstruse aspects of the Jewish law, but that in some way Jesus now brings a new law that is embedded in the Termon on the Mount and his teachings in the gospel according to St. Matthew. So today, God comes or an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, King Herod wants to kill your son and you need to take your wife and your son and your family and you need to go to Egypt to get away from this. And so he goes to Egypt in the story and he remains there because he's told, don't come back until I tell you. And so when he receives the message that he can return, he then comes back and Archelaus, Herod's son, is in power now and is every bit as cruel as Herod. And so he decides that he's not going to go to the, some heavily populated area where he'd come from. He's going to go to the Galilee and he's going to live in Nazareth. And that's what he does. Now, Matthew has done something for the reader or the listener in his era that would say, gee, what happened to the people of Israel? They went from the promised land to Egypt. They became enslaved, alienated, lost, separated. And then Moses led them out of Egypt back. 
So Jesus is the new Moses. Or at least that's the two and two that gets put together for a lot of people, right? So there is in this gospel story the idea of the promise and the fulfillment. Now we see fulfilled the promises of God in this circumstance. Every Christmas I speak about the four affirmations that I believe this season brings to us. The goodness of our humanity, that every human being can achieve the highest of their human potential, that it is possible for us to be joyful, and that Christian people, as they grow in grace and deepen their faith and their spiritual maturity, understand that they need to be peacemakers, people of peace. The shalom of God, which on Christmas I mentioned to you is a term that has many, many definitions. It is a multifaceted term. And this means that when you think about peace, we're not talking about just no fighting or the absence of war. We're talking about bringing to the world a species of serenity where God's unifying power has more of a chance to work and that we can become instruments of that. The colic for today, the beginning of the liturgy, said that God's restorative purposes are at work with regard to the dignity of human nature. But the collect also says that is the default position of all human beings, made in the image and likeness of God. And so when our dignity is being restored, it's what we're doing is living into who we already are because we tend to forget this. And the promises of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and maturity, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, is the one who shows us how to do that and gives us tools that we can use. Being joyful is not something that means you're a perpetual optimist, you know, just a glasses-half-full person. It's good, I think, to be like that, to be frank. But the truth of the matter is joy means that the uncertainties and the conundrums and the ambiguities of your life can and will come into surer and clearer focus as you live a life of intention and some species of inter interior self-regulation and strengthening your stamina to be able to face the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis. You know? My own personal view is, is that most of us aren't laid low by one huge blow of adversity, although that does happen to some people. It can, for sure. But it's the drip, drip, drip. Right? It's just the drip, drip, drip. The endless thing, the same old, same old. You know, people being the way they are all the time. And so learning in some way to uh, cope with that and to be able to see that each one of us is made in God's image and can achieve the highest of our human potential is uh, a, a powerful spiritual gift. My suspicion is that some of us have it for brief periods in our life, even on a daily basis. It's kind of like your blood pressure, you know, you're coping pretty well and firing on all eights and then you've just reached the end. Maybe it has something to do with biorhythms, do you think? 
when I was in Sausalito, there was somebody who had one of the, maybe you do something, they had a little machine that could tell them when their bio, where, where, what they, where they were on their biorhythm, you know, like this. My mother would have said, oh, eat a piece of C's candy and be quiet. <laughs> you know, forget about it. But, you know, God's grace is available to us to be able to help smooth that all out. And Christmas is a time when we affirm that. The season of Christmas, which isn't very long, it's 12 days long, of course, and uh, often we never get to the second Sunday of Christmas because we're straight to Epiphany. But it is, in a uh, theological sense and in a spiritual sense, a celebration by Christians of the presence of Christ to the church. It is enjoying the gift of the Christ child and the potentiality that that will bring in human history for sanctification. And the season of Epiphany is the season that takes that presence and makes it manifest to the world. So the story of the visit of the three magi to the infant Jesus is the biblical affirmation of the universal significance of the Incarnation. And that's what Paul was getting at in Ephesians today, that somehow this has universal significance for humanity. So you and I are to be the instruments of that process of manifestation. And uh, Epiphany is on Thursday this year, and it might be a good thing to do to think about how you can be an instrument of the manifestation of God to the world, a place where it may be a little easier for people to be good, a laudable goal. So spend the next few days on how to think about it, what to do. Amen. <laughs>